Hello there. This is Roger Kimball. I'm the editor and publisher of The New Criterion, and I'm speaking to you from the world headquarters here in New York. I'd like to introduce you to our April 2018 issue, devoted in large part to poetry. Poetry is uh, at the heart of what the new criterion has been doing for many, many years. Our first year or two, we didn't publish any poems. But for more than a decade now, we've had a special section on poetry every April, just as we have a special section on art in December. Stay tuned for an interview between our executive editor, James Pinero, and our poetry editor, David Yezzi, who put together this special section that will be coming along in just a couple of days. But for now, I'd like to call your attention to a couple of special features in the new Criterion this month. Uh, in the poetry section, I want to be sure that everyone takes a look at Ryan Wilson's review of a new book by Michael Hurley called Religion in Verse. It's a brilliant book and a brilliant review, although I will uh, uh, spoil perhaps the, the uh, denouement of the review by telling you that the copy editors of Bloomsbury Press should be ashamed of themselves. I'd also like to call attention to uh, our lead book review, which is a brilliant, brilliant review by Barry Strauss of the landmark Julius Caesar. Uh, those of you who follow these things will know that the landmark series of classics, beginning with a landmark Thucydides, followed by the landmark Herodotus, the landmark Arian, uh, has been a real ornament uh, in the culture of classical studies, uh, overseen by an independent scholar, someone who doesn't have to worry about uh, the PC police looking over his shoulder, Robert Strassler. Uh, this series has really been terrific, and the landmark Julius Caesar is, is no exception. I'd like also to read to you our notes and comments from this month. There are two of them. The first deals with the case of Amy Wax, a distinguished law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and the second deals with some uh, feminist frivolity at Mount Holyoke, which used to be a liberal arts college in Massachusetts. The verse is called Fahrenheit 451 Updated. What took them so long? That was our first question when we heard the latest news about the distinguished University of Pennsylvania law professor Amy Wax. Last summer, Professor Wax created a minor disturbance in the force of politically correct groupthink when she co-authored an op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer titled, Paying the Price for Breakdown of the Country's Bourgeois Culture. What? A college professor arguing in favor of bourgeois values? Mirabile dictu. Yes. Professor Wax and her co-author, Professor Larry Alexander from the University of San Diego, argued not only that the bourgeois values regnant in American society in the 1950s were beneficial to society as a whole, but also that they were potent aids to disadvantaged individuals seeking to better themselves economically and socially. Get married before you have children and strive to stay married for their sake 
Professors Wax and Alexander advised, get the education you need for gainful employment. Work hard. Avoid idleness. Go the extra mile for your employer or client. Be a patriot, ready to serve the country. Be neighborly, civic-minded, and charitable. Avoid coarse language in public. Be respectful of authority. Eschew substance abuse and crime. Such homely advice rankled, of course. Imagine telling the professoriate to be patriotic, to work hard, to be civil-minded or charitable. Quel horreur! Wax and Alexander were roundly condemned by their university colleagues. Thirty-three of Wax's fellow law professors at Penn signed an open letter condemning her op-ed. We categorically reject Wax's claims, they thundered. What they found especially egregious was Wax and Alexander's observation that all cultures are not equal. That hissing noise you hear is the sharp intake of breath at the utterance of such a sentiment. The tort was compounded by Wax's later statements in an interview that everyone wants to go to countries ruled by white Europeans because Anglo-Protestant cultural norms are superior. Can you believe it? Professor Wax actually had the temerity to utter this plain, irrefragable, impolitic truth. Everyone knows this to be the case. As William Henry argued back in the 1990s in his undeservedly neglected book In Defense of Elitism, quote, the simple fact is that some people are better than others, smarter, harder working, more learned, more productive, harder to replace. Moreover, Henry continued, some ideas are better than others, some values more enduring, some works of art more universal. And it follows, he concluded, that some cultures, though we dare not say it, are more accomplished than others and therefore more worthy of study. Every corner of the human race may have something to contribute. That does not mean that all contributions are equal. It is scarcely the same thing to put a man on the moon as to put a bone through your nose. End quote. True, too true. But in a pusillanimous society terrified by its own shadow, it is one thing to know the truth, quite another to utter it in public. For his part, Theodore Ruger, the dean of Penn Law School, tried to have it both ways. He didn't, on that occasion, discipline Professor Wax or seek to revoke her tenure, but he hastened to disparage her observation as, quote, divisive, even noxious, and to, quote, state my own personal view that as a scholar and educator, I reject emphatically any claim that a single cultural tradition is better than all the others. What a brave man is Ted Ruger. Uriah Heep would have been proud. There were other efflorescences of outrage directed at Professors Wax and Alexander last autumn. But since the metabolism of outrage and victimhood is voracious as well as predatory, fresh objects of obloquy were soon discovered. Attention drifted away from Amy Wax. Until a few weeks ago, that is. At some point in March, a social justice vigilante came across an internet video of a conversation between Glenn Lowry, a black, anti-affirmative action economics professor at Brown University, and Professor Wax, titled The Downside to Social Uplift, 
The conversation, which was posted in September, revolved around some of the issues that Professor Wax had raised in her op-ed for the Inquirer. Toward the end of the interview, the painful subject of unintended consequences came up. The very practice of affirmative action, Professor Lowry pointed out, entails that those benefiting from its dispensation will, in aggregate, be less qualified than those who do not qualify for special treatment. That's what the practice of affirmative action means, that people who are less qualified will be given preference over people who are more qualified because of some extrinsic consideration, race, say, or sex, or ethnic origin. Professor Wax agreed and noted that one consequence of this was that those admitted to academic programs through affirmative action often struggle to compete. I don't think I've ever seen a black student graduate in the top quarter of the class, Professor Wax said, and rarely, rarely in the top half. Professor Wax also observed that the Penn Law Review had an unpublished racial diversity mandate. Uh-oh. It took several months for the censors to get around to absorbing this comment, but last month they finally did, and the result was mass hysteria. From Ghana to Tokyo to Israel, students associated with Penn Law School were furiously trading emails, tweets, and other social media bulletins about Amy Wax. The university's Black Law Students Association, whose president, Nick Hall, was instrumental in publicizing the video, went into a swivet. What, they demanded of Dean Ruger, was he going to do about Professor Wax's outrageous comments? In a word, capitulate, then preen. Dean Ruger announced that Professor Wax would henceforth be barred from teaching any mandatory first-year courses. It is imperative for me as dean to state, he thundered, that black students have graduated in the top of the class at Penn Law and that the law review does not have a diversity mandate. Did he offer any data to back that up? No. Perhaps Penn doesn't keep track. But Dean Ruger may wish to consult a study published in the Stanford Law Review in 2004, which showed that in the most elite law schools, 52% of first-year black students pooled in the bottom 10th of their class, compared to 6% of whites. Only 8% of first-year black students were in the top half of their class. Lack of data, however, is no impediment to declaring one's higher virtue while simultaneously caving in to the atavistic forces of political correctness. Amy Wax, intoned Dean Ruger, is protected by Penn's policies of free and open expression as well as academic freedom. Nevertheless, she will be treated as a toxic personality, too dangerous for Penn's tender shoots embarking on a career in law. In light of Professor Wax's statements, Dean Ruger wrote in a community-wide email, black students assigned to her class may reasonably wonder whether their professor has already come to a conclusion about their performance, their presence in the class, and potential for success in law school and thereafter. They may legitimately question whether the inaccurate and belittling statements she has made may adversely affect their learning environment and career prospects. More broadly, this dynamic may negatively affect the classroom experience for all students regardless of race or background. 
As Jason Richwine noted in a column for National Review, Dean Ruger's protest is almost Orwellian in its blame-shifting. All of the issues he lists are the direct result of Penn's affirmative action policies. Those policies, Richwine said, generate a racial skills gap in Penn's first-year class, and Professor Wax has merely voiced what every rational observer already knows. Moreover, grading of first-year students at Penn is blind. Professors do not know which grade is assigned to which student. Doubtless, Dean Ruger hoped that by scapegoating Amy Wax, he would effectively mollify the beast of political correctness. Not likely. As could have been predicted, his capitulation and nauseating two minutes of hate display of politically correct grandiosity merely sharpened the appetite of the racial grievance mongers. Dean Ruger publicly castigated and in effect demoted Amy Wax, but that was not enough for Asa Khalif, a leader of Black Lives Matter Pennsylvania, who was demanding that she be fired outright. Indeed, he told the Philadelphia Tribune that Penn has one week to comply. None of what this racist is doing is new to anyone familiar with her, Khalif said. Many people have known about her for years, not just black and brown people, but people who don't believe she can fairly grade or teach people who don't look like her. We are unwavering in our one demand that she be fired. As we write, La Fair Wax is still unfolding. Who knows to what lengths Mr. Khalif and his Black Lives Matter thugs are willing to go? Who knows what ecstasies of groveling condemnation Dean Ruger and other Penn administrators may indulge? One thing, however, is clear. The truth is a dispensable commodity at our elite colleges and universities. When it clashes with the imperatives of political correctness, the truth loses. Like the firemen in Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, most of those populating the higher education establishment are busy destroying the very things they had, once upon a time, been trained to cherish and protect. And this brings me to Mount Holyoke College. If, at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, it is now verboten to tell the truth about the dismal results of affirmative action, at Mount Holyoke, that tiny New England sanitarium for feminist folly, it is impossible to tell the truth about sex. If you go to the college's website, you will find that it describes itself as, quote, a liberal arts college for women that is, quote, renowned for educating women leaders. Those phrases may soon have to be revised, however. A recently released faculty guide to, quote, supporting trans and non-binary students, end quote, advises teachers to avoid calling students women or referring to the two genders. The guide helpfully directs the attention of teachers to other resources, Teaching Beyond the Gender Binary in the University Classroom, for example. FAQs about pronouns, which is not a grammatical primer. Transphobia and racism and other intersections. And Ask Me, What 
LGBTQ students want their professors to know. A video. Of course, all this is merely business as usual at elite American colleges these days. No one is shocked or surprised by this carnival of rubbish any more than they are shocked or surprised to find such student organizations at Mount Holyoke as Fem-Powered, Gender Plus, Coalition for Asexual Aromantic Awareness, or the campus resource MoZone, gender training for the entire campus community. It is, as we say, almost old hat at this point in the devolution of American higher education. Nevertheless, we do wonder what parents think about sending their daughters to such patently twisted institutions. Let's leave the moral, social, and intellectual deformations of such places to one side. It costs $64,658 per annum to attend Mount Holyoke. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. And that's Roger Kimball signing off for April. Please visit our website at www.newcriterion.com and stay tuned for James Spinero and David Yezzy talking about our special poetry section.